I'm glad you can make it as we kick off uh, this brand new series looking at the story of a guy in the Bible called Nehemiah and more specifically how God used Nehemiah to motivate all of his people to do something really quite phenomenal. Now, by way of introduction, I don't know about you, but I've always been intrigued by those instances, by those occasions where a group of people suddenly experience something unexpected. Like just then, spontaneously, just burst into applause. For want of a better phrase, they're kind of everybody moments. Something mysterious happens to a whole crowd of people and spontaneously they find themselves responding in the same way. I'm fascinated by what causes that and how exactly it happens. Saw it recently, didn't we, with the riots in Birmingham. It's like whole parts of the city suddenly closed down. People were let out of work early, people stayed indoors, buses stopped running, rumours were rife. There's a sense of shock that engulfed the whole city, quickly followed by a huge wave of outrage. We've also just marked the 10th anniversary of 9-11. Still remember, 10 years back, turning on the TV, expecting to see something different, and seeing those infamous shots of the planes flying into the Twin Towers. It felt as though the whole world was watching those moments, and that the whole world would never be the same again. I can also still remember pretty vividly the aftermath of Princess Diana's death. sense of national grief the books of condolence, the flowers that were just piled up in the streets, the hundreds of thousands who gathered on the day of her funeral to watch the hearse go by. And then, right on the opposite end of the spectrum, there was the recent royal wedding. And again, people lined the streets, but this time to celebrate. Now, I've got to admit, personally, I'm not really much of a royalist. In fact, I went into the office to work to escape it all and left the family at home watching it on TV. But when I finally got home later on that evening and thought it was safe to turn on the TV, there was another one of those countless reruns of the whole ceremony. I've got to admit, I actually couldn't take my eyes off it. It's like there was this overwhelming sense of joy and national pride that swept the whole nation. I also remember going to a U2 concert at Wembley Stadium back in 1993. I think it was the Zooropa Tour, if that means anything to anyone. It was absolutely pouring with rain. No one really seemed to care. Now, undoubtedly, the highlight of the whole thing was when the Edge started strumming the opening chords of Pride in the name of love. And it's like the whole stadium erupted and everyone leapt to their feet and started singing along. I think it probably helped that most people were really quite inebriated at that point, but everyone sang every word of that song. It's like there are these certain moments where everybody is affected. Often, without a whole load of warning, something happens that grabs everyone's attention. Everyone stops what they're doing and knows they've got to respond in a certain way. And it's not choreographed. And people aren't necessarily told what to do, but what you tend to find is it sparks a whole load of creativity. People start taking initiative. People are provoked to action, where previously everyone was just concerned with their own personal world. Suddenly, the perspective shifts. The perspective changes dramatically, and you get whole groups of people drawn together and united in grief or in celebration. Or oftentimes, 
in a fresh new wave of determination to bring about change. As we launch this brand new series today, I want to lay my cards on the table right at the outset. I really do believe that God is preparing Church Central for one of those everybody moments. I think God is going to do something among us that we are all going to remember for a long, long time. I believe that we're entering a new season of growth and expansion. And I believe that God is going to grip us with a fresh sense of vision for what he's wanting to do in this city. And I'm praying that it leads to a permanent change. I'm praying that it leads to a permanent change in our priorities and in our sense of expectation. So for the rest of this term, we're going to be looking at this book in the Old Testament that describes one of the most powerful everybody experiences in the whole Bible. It starts with one man, Nehemiah, but very quickly spreads to the rest of God's people. And as we're going to be seeing, there are all kinds of parallels between what happened way back then and what God is looking to do in and through us today. This morning, I simply want to set the scene for the rest of this series. We're going to look at what it was that sparked the extraordinary chain of events that we're going to be following in the weeks to come. I want us to pick up the story in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. The words will appear on the screens behind me. Nehemiah 1, verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. A couple of things I'll tell you right up front about Nehemiah. First of all, Nehemiah was not a paid religious professional. He didn't go to Bible college. He's not a pastor or a church leader He's not a priest. He's just a guy doing a normal job. In fact, if you scan down to verse 11, you'll see his job was cupbearer to the king. Now, here's how that worked. The king back then had a whole load of enemies, a lot of people who wanted him dead. And one of the ways to kill the king was to discreetly slip poison into his wine. And so the king, to kind of get round this, would hire some guy who was either very bold or very stupid, kind of fine line between the two, and he'd hire that guy to taste the wine before he drank it himself. And if it was poisoned, he'd realise, because the cupbearer would die, and he'd know not to drink the wine himself. That's how it worked. So being the cupbearer to the king was, in fact, an incredibly important role. It effectively made Nehemiah the most trusted man in the nation. It's as though the king's very life depended on him doing his job properly. Of course, Nehemiah would never become a king himself. But his humility and his servant's heart and his dependability... And his willingness to be faithful over a long period of time, all of these things allowed him to rise up to this very important strategic position. And after all those years of service, Nehemiah's character was slowly but surely refined. He was also being developed into a pretty skilled leader. And as we're going to see, eventually God opens the door to give him an opportunity to step out and use those gifts in a pretty remarkable way. Now for those of you here today who perhaps struggle with the job you do, 
I hope that this series, among other things, is going to be an encouragement to you. Wherever you work, I want you to begin viewing it as a potential training ground. It's a place where God can develop your character. It's a context where he very often hones your skills and your abilities. I want you to see that God can, and in fact does, use people who are humble enough just to serve. Do not necessarily be in the limelight. Do not necessarily get all the praise. Not necessarily be appointed the leader, but just to serve faithfully in the role they've been given. One of the big lessons we're going to learn from Nehemiah is regardless of your vocation, often in fact as a result of your vocation, God can use you to do amazing things. Second thing, just to flag up, is that much of the book of Nehemiah reads like extracts from Nehemiah's personal journal. Show of hands on this one. How many of you are journalers? Maybe you write diaries, keep a journal, or, or maybe you blog. How many of you fit into any of those categories? Three, four, five of you. So, actually, this isn't going to be that instructive, but the first seven chapters and the 13th chapter are, in fact, just like reading the pages out of Nehemiah's diary or his blog. So, as we read on, we're not going to be getting the external perspective of another blogger or of the media, or of all those people who are looking in on what Nehemiah is doing. We're going to be looking at what happens from Nehemiah's own personal perspective. We're going to be getting the inside track on how he feels, and what he thinks about the things that God has called him to do. So returning to the passage then, like any good diary writer, Nehemiah starts by giving us the date when all of this happened. He said it was in the month of Kislev. That was in the winter, maybe November, December. You're looking at the winter months here. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year. That's the 20th year of the reign of the king. So historians would say this is about 445 BC, 445 years before Christ. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Han and I, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. Now again, just to explain, many years prior to this, enemy forces had stormed the city of Jerusalem. They'd plundered it, they'd dragged virtually everyone off into captivity, forcing them all into slave labour. But a few years later, that conquering enemy got conquered by yet another country. And so they had no use for the Israeli slaves anymore. And so they allowed some of them, a remnant of them, to go back and resettle in their homeland, to return to Jerusalem. And so Nehemiah here is asking his brother, hey, how's it going back in Jerusalem? How's the reconstruction work going? Are people settling back in okay? Verse 3, they said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burnt with fire. Now I guess in our culture, 
a broken down wall isn't all that significant. It's not really bad news. But in ancient times, any city whose walls were lying in ruins was in deep, deep trouble. Because when a city's walls were down, enemy nations from around the area would simply stand by and wait until goods were produced and put into the marketplace, and then under cover of darkness, they'd sweep in at night and plunder it all. It's like when a city's walls were down, the city was vulnerable to all kinds of evil. So when Nehemiah's brother tells him that, yep, there's a lot of people streaming back to Jerusalem to try to rebuild their lives, but they haven't rebuilt the wall yet, Nehemiah can kind of visualize what was going on every night. And he is utterly devastated. Nehemiah is absolutely heartbroken to hear this news. Verse 4, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days, I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Now, if you connect this with chapter 2, verse 1, you'll find that Nehemiah, Nehemiah fasted and prayed and wept for three or four months. That is how badly he took this news. Like Jesus, who'd later weep over Jerusalem himself. Here, Nehemiah is weeping for Jerusalem. He is deeply moved. He's weeping for his city. He's weeping for his people. He's absolutely heartbroken. He's devastated. He's a broken man. Now, it strikes me that a lot of the time, our response to bad news is very, very different. We have so much information coming at us the whole time, don't we, from the internet, from TV, from radio, from the newspapers, that we can respond to devastating news with a whole load of indifference. We can see images of children with emaciated bodies in the midst of a dreadful drought in Africa. Or we can hear of hundreds dying in an earthquake or in a bomb blast. And perhaps momentarily we feel moved. But then we forget all about it. There's an occasion in Luke's Gospel, chapter 8, verse 18, where Jesus specifically instructed his followers to consider carefully how you listen. Consider carefully how you listen. We hear news all the time. But a lot of the time, we don't know how to hear it. We can be moved for a moment, and yet we haven't heard enough to change us. But Nehemiah heard, and that was all it took. It left him utterly devastated. It's as though there are two different kinds of listening, two ways of listening. For example, you could be driving down the motorway, listening to the radio, and hear news of four miners losing their lives in South Wales. You can hear of the loss of life in the uprising in the Yemen. And you can be momentarily moved, slightly concerned for a while. But then the sports news comes on, or they start playing Adele's latest single, and you've forgotten all about it. Maybe you're in uprage, or maybe you're kind of singing along, I don't know. That's one way of listening. If truth be told, that's probably the kind of listening that most of us do on a Sunday morning. We, We can be stirred or challenged by the message... But then we go home, have lunch, 
In a week or so, we've forgotten all about it. But there is another way of listening. Imagine you're driving down the motorway, listening to the radio, and suddenly there's an urgent announcement for Mr. and Mrs. Mitchell. Their son is seriously ill and has been rushed to hospital. Now, if you are Mr. or Mrs. Mitchell and you've got a son, you hear that news differently. It grabs your attention. You you stop what you're doing. You change direction. That is what it was like for Nehemiah. He wasn't so preoccupied with his own personal world that he was deaf to the news of what was going on with his own people back in Jerusalem. He took it very personally. And that's the kind of listening that Jesus wants us to have. That's how we are to hear. There's another occasion. Jesus bemoans the fact that this people's heart has become calloused or hardened. He says, they hardly hear with their ears. Now, with that warning in mind, I want you to listen to these words of Jesus from Matthew chapter 25. In verse 41, he says, then he, that's his father in heaven, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, depart from me, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Verse 46. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Now we find it very difficult to hear the news that people around us, our neighbours, our flatmates, our friends, our course mates, our work colleagues, perhaps even our family members, are going to go away to eternal punishment. Jesus said, consider carefully how you listen. Allow it to move you. Allow it to break you. Allow it to devastate you. Don't just blot it out. Don't just cover your ears and because you don't like the sound of it, pretend it's not true. Don't ignore it. People that you know, people that you care for, are in grave, grave danger. People around you, people that you spend a lot of your life with, are heading for destruction. I'd say we cannot... We must not hear this news with indifference. Surely it's got to provoke a response in us, not a momentary response, a lasting response. How about what we were hearing last week? We're seeing how Jesus confidently and purposefully announced, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You know, since the beginning of time, his major preoccupation has been gathering a people for himself. God's chief desire in creating the entire universe way back in the beginning was to have a people for himself of whom he could say, I am theirs and they are mine. 
I don't think any theme in all of the Bible so reveals God's ultimate goal than the frequently repeated refrain, I will be their God and they will be my people. We get a glimpse of how it's all going to end up in the book of Revelation. We get a sneak preview of what's going to happen in the end. The whole story of history concludes with the climax of the church. Brilliant with the glory of God made ready as a bride for her husband. Do you get the message? Between now and the end of time, the church is God's ultimate goal and passion. That is what Christ literally gave his life for. Jesus died for the church, a glorious church made up of people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue. That's what he wants. And surely that's what he's going to have. But as we look at the state of the church in this city, it doesn't quite match God's vision. There's not a whole lot of churches here, and a large proportion of those that are here tend to be on the liberal side. They're not necessarily Bible-believing. What that means is that If suddenly something happened this week to cause the whole city en masse to decide they wanted to check out Jesus, there actually wouldn't be enough churches for them. And if they did manage to find a church, there is no guarantee whatsoever that they'd end up hearing anything about Jesus. It's like the walls are down. The gates aren't there. And the world can see it. We should feel the shame of it. Furthermore, there is not one church in Birmingham, the second city, there is not one church in Birmingham that is among the hundred largest churches in the UK. Not one. Maybe you're thinking, well, big churches, who cares? The point is that a big church if it does its job right, has big resources to be a big help. I don't mind if they're Baptist, or Independent, or Pentecostal, or Anglican. I don't care. Do they believe the Bible? Do they love Jesus? Do they take the Great Commission seriously? That's what matters. That's what I care about. Because at the end of the day, it's not just about Church Central being a great church. It's about God doing something great here in this city. That's what we want. And the greatest need in Birmingham right now is for people to be introduced to Jesus. Something that sadly, to this point, hasn't happened in large numbers. In fact, Jesus is viewed as completely irrelevant by most of the people around us. Less than 5% of the people who live in this city genuinely know Jesus. It means if you were to kind of go to the next Villa match or the next Blues game in the city, if the stadiums are full to capacity, that would be just about as many people that go to a church to worship Jesus here in Birmingham on any given Sunday. The rest would all be going to hell. We need to hear that news. And we need to hear it in such a way that it bothers us. Because that's where the story begins. 
Something happens when people like Nehemiah hear this kind of news in such a way it triggers a response. It's like something wells up from deep inside them. They find themselves crying out, Enough! We can't stand this any longer! God has said, The church will be the joy of the whole earth. And yet here in this city, the church is pretty much a laughingstock. The eternal destiny of absolutely everyone in this city is determined solely by their response to Jesus. And an increasing number of people here in this city have never even heard of Jesus. And the vast majority of those who have heard of him merely think of him as a swear word. What's your response? What's your response? How does this make you feel? Force yourself to consider it. It's not necessarily new news to any of us. A lot of us know it, but do we feel it? Nehemiah, he had the heart of Jesus for his city. And I can't help thinking that Jesus wants us to have his heart for our city. And I'm not trying to make anyone feel guilty. If you're not moved by this, if if it doesn't really impact you most of the time, if, if you don't feel the tension of all of this, I guess I just want to invite you to ask the Holy Spirit to give you the heart of Jesus, to see the condition of this city the way Jesus sees it, to feel about it the way Jesus does. You know what? If you'll do that, if you'll invite the Holy Spirit to create the heart of Jesus in you, he will do it. But is that what you want? Because just to warn you, it will change everything. Like Jesus, like Nehemiah several centuries before him, suddenly you won't have a calloused, a hardened heart You won't be indifferent to the plight of the people around you. You'll feel it with such force, you won't be able to stand it any longer. The shame of it will hit you hard. You will feel that kind of igniting spark inside you, triggering something. Without anyone having to coerce you, without anyone having to pressure you, without anyone having to twist your arm, you will find you just have to give yourself to rebuilding what's been broken. Jesus would say to you, consider carefully how you listen. Consider carefully how you listen. Nehemiah was a good hearer of news. What I love though is, Nehemiah sees the problem, he gets heartbroken, and before he does anything else, he goes to prayer. His first response wasn't action. He starts by prayerfully considering what God would have him do. It's like he was so overwhelmed by the sheer enormity of the situation, the sheer enormity of the problem, he realised without God there was no solution. Without God there really was no answer. And so he prays. And he keeps on praying. On no less than nine occasions throughout the whole course of this book, Nehemiah returns to prayer. Next week, we'll come back, we'll look at exactly what he prays in this first prayer. 
But for now, what I want you to see is that prayer is always and everywhere an appropriate response. Not least because it protects us from two pretty common dangers. First danger is to feel like we've got to do it all ourselves, which is guaranteed to end up leaving us feeling absolutely exhausted. There are so many burnt-out Christians around who, who they got the first bit right. They saw the urgency of the need. They felt it deeply. But then they made the mistake of feeling personally responsible to sort it all out in their own strengths. Prayer is a great antidote to that. It acknowledges that we desperately need God. The opposite danger is to grasp the enormity of the problem And then just give up before we've even started. I mean, it can all appear so discouraging, we end up just feeling pretty hopeless and depressed by it all. And you really don't need me to tell you that that is not going to lead anywhere good. Nehemiah was overwhelmed with the enormity of the problem. And so he prayed. He brought his grief to God. He cried out to him. We're told that for many days he mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. If you recall, there's a place in Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, where he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now I guess When we think of that word comfort, we maybe think of someone saying, there, there, and trying to soothe us. It'll all be okay, no need to worry. That is not the meaning of the word that Jesus uses here. It means something far more than being soothed and told not to worry about it. It means to fortify. It means to strengthen. It means to provoke. It means to stir up to action. And that's certainly what happens to Nehemiah here. After mourning over the state of his city, he was transformed. He was strengthened. He was commissioned by God. From that point on, it's as though absolutely nothing could stop him. As we'll see over the next few weeks, he draws up a plan of action. He rallies the people together. He is not going to give up on this. So he challenges the rest of the people to set to work, to join him in rebuilding the wall. And later on in Nehemiah, in chapter 2, verse 18, it says that everybody replied together, let us start rebuilding. It was another one of those everybody moments, just like everyone got fearful when the riots hit Birmingham. Everyone went silent when Diana died. Everyone lined the streets at the royal wedding. Everyone sang with Bono in Wembley Stadium back in 1993. Everybody resolved to start rebuilding the walls of the city. It was one of those everybody moments. God stirred something in the hearts of all his people. And whenever God stirs the heart of his people, whenever God's people pull together and attempt to achieve something great for his glory, it's a history-shaping moment. You need to watch out You need to stand back, because something powerful will happen. So here's what I want to do before we finish. If you're here today, and you are willing to invite the Holy Spirit to give you the heart of Jesus, to see the condition of this city, 
See the state of the church in this city. See the plight of those who don't know Jesus in this city. And feel about it the way Jesus does. If you would like to ask the Holy Spirit to do that in you, then in a moment I'm going to ask you to stand and I'm going to invite the Holy Spirit to come and do just that. And then we're going to pray together for God to do something great in our city through us. So if you're happy to invite the Holy Spirit to work in you the heart of Jesus for the people around us, do you stand right now and we're going to pray.